Hey everybody, welcome to the Full Frame uh, Podcast. You just oh. uh, just uh, take, stop and take it from the top one more time. Okay, okay, you ready? Elizabeth and Ollie, how are you guys doing? We're good, Zach. We're Thanks good. for having us. I'm so glad to have you guys on. Also, I feel sad because we haven't hung out in forever because of pandemics, so... Oh, it's criminal, but it's, you know it's that's, really sad. That's everyone's reality. So at got, least we get this space to hang out. I know. Well, and this is like how everybody's hanging out these days. So I guess it's normal. <laughs> um, are you guys both still in the city? Um, typically, yes. I'm talking to you from the Jersey Shore today, but I have, for the most part, been in Brooklyn this whole time. Yeah, I'm in New York too. Yeah, we left for a little bit during the summer, but. We're back. Um, Where did you go? We went to my mom's in Georgia. Um, and nice. uh, we were there for a month, which was nice. Because um, I got to work, but also we got to, you know, spread out. And she has, like, a porch. And, yeah. You know what I mean? Right. So, like, it, sit outside and, like, breathe air. Breathe real <laughs> air, yes. Yeah. Instead of, you know, walking outside and just 20 people walking by with, with or without masks, I should say. Right. Right, um, right. But uh, well, anyways, um, well, I'm glad you guys are both in the city. Hopefully, when things settle down, we can we can all hang out again. Um, but for now, um, thank you again for joining me. Uh, I just want to ask um, to to kind of get a baseline, um, and you guys can answer individually or or together. How did you guys get into filmmaking? Um, okay, I'll start. Um, I got into filmmaking, I guess, like one of my earliest memories is actually wanting to be an actor. Um, and I really like loved watching movies and, and like, you know, learning monologues and performing for like my family slash myself in the shower. Um, and then I went to like an acting summer camp here in New York, actually, um, and I realized that I wanted to be the person behind the camera calling the shots and deciding how the story was going to be told. And I was like, oh, I am in the wrong place. Like, your heart is generally in the right place, but there's absolutely no reason for me in front for me to be in front of a camera. Um, and I realized that I wanted to direct instead, and that was when I was, like, 14. Um, and then I just, like... You know, I was a, a good enough student that I could, like, force my or, like, ask my teachers to let me make, like, videos instead of write essays and stuff like that. Um, so I just sort of always was into it. I love that. Always been dramatic. <laughs> She's always lived for the drama. <laughs> Elizabeth, what about you? Um, yeah, so I had kind of a meandering path into the world of filmmaking. Um, I was a trombone player since I was 10, um, and I thought that's what I was gonna do professionally. I wanted to be in an orchestra. Um, and that was like literally my path. I went to college to be a symphonic trombone player. And then one of my friends was making like a 48 hour film festival film, and he asked me to just like act in it you know, act in quotation marks. And um, then when he finished it, he was like, oh, I need music and I don't know what to do. And I was like, ah, I could probably do something. 
Um, so I, I recorded my then boyfriend, now husband playing piano and it was like a solo piano, absolutely terrible <laughs> film score for this 48 hour <laughs> film festival film. Um, and I was like, wow, I never knew this was a thing. I really love this. Um, and so I started like going over to Tisch at NYU mm-hmm. and just kind of like being friends with filmmakers and learning more about film. And, um, I kind of got some films to score and then, um, one of my friends in Tish was like, oh, if you're going to score a film, would you want to come to set? I need help on set anyway. You could be my like line producer, my PA. And I, I went and I was like, oh, this is great. Mm-hmm. And I kind of never stopped going to set. So that's how I kind of fell into this very random combination of producer, film composer that I have kept to this day. <laughs> I love that. She's a- yeah, she's a producer via getting Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> yes. <laughs> via staying awake. It was an overnight shoot. My first shoot was an overnight. Oh, and I was like, this is great. I don't know why I liked it. <laughs> I think there's something. I uh, I don't know. I don't know what my first, like, being on actual, like, an actual set was like. I, I don't even remember. I think I just, it felt <laughs> natural in college to make the transition from, I'm just, you know, holding a handy cam with my friends to mm-hmm. now I'm holding something maybe a little bit more advanced, maybe not. I don't know. And then like it's it, it's always felt the same being on set to me, especially directing. Mm-hmm. Um, it always feels like when I'm directing, it's just following the fun like. Oh, yeah. It's um, like summer camp. <laughs> it is kind of like summer camp. You're stuck with a bunch of people you don't know sometimes but mm-hmm. you're all doing the same stuff. <laughs> Where did you guys end up going to school? Did you go to film school? And um, mm-hmm. did, did you learn a lot at film school? Yeah, so basically, um, as I said, I always knew I wanted to be a filmmaker, um, but I was always also a huge nerd. Um, so I decided that I'd only go to film school if I got into NYU, because that was the program that I wanted. Um, and otherwise, I just like, you know, study something else and just like still make films. Um, but I, I did get in, so I was lucky enough. And I actually double majored in film and TV, but also in religious studies. So I did have that like academic background that I also enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I also went to NYU, um, but I was in the music school. So I was in Steinhardt. Um, and then I, you know, made a lot of friends in Tisch, and um, I ended up getting a film production minor in Tisch. So I didn't actually have to take like any technical filmmaking classes. Um, they were all focused on like the business side of the film industry, and I think I took I had to take like a screenwriting class, and that was my my film minor. So it was kind of getting like a better understanding of story and a better understanding of the biz. Mm-hmm. So did you guys meet in college then? Yes. Yes. So when when PW was, you know, uh, going to Tish and exploring her new passion, um, I like also was there. I think the first time I met her was actually like at the Tish student lounge. Do you remember? Yeah, I think it was at um, a production meeting for another friend short. That, yes. So I was producing and scoring it, yeah. and Ale was funnily enough ading oh boy. a short. <laughs> How did she do? Um, she was great. I have I have nothing but faith that she was great. 
She was really great. She well, used the, those the organizational skills. <laughs> I love that. Um, but yeah, it was kind of love at first sight. I just remember being introduced to her. She seemed very competent, but also um, they were like, this is PW. And I was like, wow, that's such a cool nickname. <laughs> I want to be friends with that girl. Um, so yeah, it was great. Yeah, so we definitely met at, in like a Tish student lounge in a meeting and we were just like, you at each other and then we like went on set for that short which was called moonlight it's not the barry jenkins film it is not um, it was actually before oh boy. <laughs> you guys thought of moonlight the title first got it uh yeah so <laughs> how dare um, he i know um <laughs> but yeah then we had a great time on set i love that um so what was the first project that you guys uh worked on together in like a proper like director producer composer kind of uh so i think the first time i was directing and you were producing it was for rosa right mm-hmm. i want to ask about yeah. rosa yeah so rosa was my thesis film um we shot it in like 2014 which sounds like a billion years ago <laughs> now um and it came out when we graduated in 2015 um, and yeah, that was the first time that we like formally collaborated in the positions that we do now, except she didn't score that, but that, that comes up later. Yeah. <laughs> How did, uh, where did the idea for Rosa come about and, um, what were some of the challenges that you guys dealt with in pre-production and production? The idea from Rosa, um, I think that when you're... I think when you're starting as a filmmaker and as a storyteller of any sort, really, it's important to tell the stories you know. I think doing something different is ambitious, maybe to the point where you can end up hurting yourself. Like if, Mm. or, you know, just not doing your best job. I think that if if at the heart of what we do is um, find honesty and tell our truths, we want to start at a place that is uh, very known to us. Um, I mean, that's how I feel. Mm -hmm. So Rosa was like a very personal story. Um, I'd been doing like a bunch of like thriller and and horror like little projects at NYU. Um, And this was a completely different direction. Um, It was like me thinking about growing up in Colombia, growing up within like a very uh, growing up with just uh, in a in a system with a lot of class disparity, let's just say, hmm. um, and it's basically the story of a little boy, which is me. Um, don't ask me why I made it a boy and not a girl. I don't know. I just think that as a kid, I was more like a boy than a girl. Um, <laughs> and his relationship with his um, with a domestic worker that has worked for the family his whole life. Um, so that's really where the idea came about. And I will say in terms of production, the hardest thing was that we shot it in Colombia. Wow. Um, so that was, you know, Elizabeth didn't go to Colombia. She had to do like a lot of producing, like (laughs) from a distance from the U.S. Uh, so it was a big challenge because at the time I also like sort of had a clear idea, not a super clear idea, but a better understanding of like how the film industry works here in terms of like, Connections, contacts, uh, actors, uh, rental houses, how much 
something costs like even even budgeting like we knew all of these things for new york but mm-hmm. not for like cartagena like where do you find mm-hmm. where do you rent a camera in cartagena i didn't know i had no idea uh, so just from the very like base logistical level it was challenging <laughs> yeah it sounds like um trying to even just crew up um if you're mm-hmm. not like you know in film school it's all just like hey, do you want to be my AD? Or like, hey, like, you're my buddy. Like, why don't you shoot it? Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I guess, um, what, where did you go from, from there? Did you go about hiring local crew? Or um, mm-hmm. did you bring people with you? Did you have a budget for that? How, how did that all work out? So some of the positions um, we uh, brought from the U.S., like I would say DP, Um, and a couple other ones. But then I also had some Colombian friends who were not in the film industry, but like in theater um, Mm -hmm. and had like, could bring that knowledge to like production design and things like that. Um, And then some local people from Cartagena uh, that also we hired and helped us. How big was your crew? If you recall. Uh, How big was the crew? Maybe... Uh, let's say without actors and extra, maybe 12 people. Okay. So like moderate for a short film mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and a student film as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's great. And then um, did you guys, um, did you guys learn anything on the, on the shoot that you have, like, like a lesson that came from that particular short and um, constructing that sort of um, shoot getting it off the ground that you carry with you? Hmm. Mm, That's a good question. Uh, In terms of like lessons about like physical production, um, I'd say, I'd say that after, so because of all the logistical nightmare things that we were dealing with at a certain point, like two days before the film, it was like, very unsure whether we were even going to be able to shoot this and mind you we've like flown in people from new york we have like friends that flew that flew from bogota we have people in cartagena and like the camera is we're having some sort of issue the camera had to be brought from bogota um and something was happening with that rental and basically we didn't know that we were going to be able to get the camera to cartagena on time for production to begin Obviously, the schedule super tight. We have like return tickets bought for a few days later. Mm-hmm. So like nothing can be delayed. Um, and it, it, it just felt like things were going to fall apart. And of course, they never do. But they always feel like always they're going like to completely fall apart. Mm-hmm. So I think that was the big lesson. Like, look, you just keep going. You put one foot in front of the other. You wake up earlier the next day. You have your like internal panic. And then you're like, cool, what can I do in the meantime? Uh, so that even if the camera had been delayed by one day, maybe we would have, uh, we had like backup plans of what shots we would, we would have to cut and how we could make the schedule go by faster. Um, so everything, you know, at that point when you've already had the hardest part of the infrastructure sort of built, which is bringing all these people, gathering this crew, like the, the, the people are the most important component of making a film. So once you have that, the rest sort of falls into place. And you just have to have like a little faith in the very cruel film gods, but they usually come through at the end. Mm-hmm. 
I, I think for me, um, and this sounds awful, but it's, um, I swear it's positive. It just, I mean, it like Rosa, when you watch Rosa, you would never be like, oh, this is a student film. But it was like we were we were 21, 22. We were students. And I think every production I've done just sorry, my dog is <laughs> That's OK. Um, I think every production I've done just like teaches me that I need to be more insane about planning um, and sure. and like not in a controlling way, but like it does kind of come off in that way. But it's it's literally just because, you know, things are going to go so wrong that if you can plan everything else, it's like, oh, that's fine. And I, I will say that that prepared me so much for our most recent short that we did um, and I think people thought I was like literally being insane in pre-production meetings when I would have like a list of 200 things and be like, okay, so while, um, you know, Soren and Rachel are unloading the truck, who's sitting in the truck in case a cop comes and they need to move? And when they move it, where are they going to move it? Oh, there's a spot right around the corner and they can still load in and they won't have to like drive uptown and drive in circles, which takes 45 minutes. So it's just like... <laughs> The more you can plan, the smoother everything's gonna go, and like you know, it your your crew is gonna be like, "What are you talking about?" But then they'll thank you when they don't have to stop loading because you had to go drive up the West Side Highway to get a parking spot. So, <laughs> well, no, and I think that's a mark of of a good producer, um, someone that is thinking ten steps ahead, that's thinking of every angle that can be approached at, you know it's not just cops, but it's security guards or it's, you know, doormen or whatever. And New York mm -hmm. kind of has this unique sort of like extra layer of challenge. Um, and maybe it's just an inner city thing in general, but New York, because it's specific to us, because you can't just drive around the corner and park somewhere. Like it's not just a neighborhood like in suburbia or in the country where it's like, oh, there's tons of parking. Just mm -hmm five minute walk away or even a one minute walk away it's like specific to how do we get the truck in front or behind a building so we can get all this equipment up 30 stories or mm -hmm. you know whatever it is um that just adds that extra layer of challenge right um, it's like oh do i have to befriend the security guard of a parking <laughs> lot that we're not actually parking in <laughs> but <laughs> right. just like it make just, a quick friend <laughs> just in <Right>. case <laughs> Um, well, that's great. Well, um, so uh, tell me a little bit about Post for Rosa um, and then also um, what the next step was. I know uh, with your thesis film, sometimes they have, you have certain goals for them. Were those goals met and um, were, were any not? I think Elizabeth and I have actually talked a bit about how the sort of distribution of Rosa um, happened and what we can learn from it. Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of post-production, uh, most of it was done here, as in, in New York. Um, the sound was done by a post house in Colombia. But uh, I think the big, the big thing that you sort of learn, because Rosa did do well in its, in its festival circuit, um, but, but, you know, there's a lot to be learned and a lot to, to think about um, of how to prepare and sort of capitalize on the fact that you have a project that is finished that you want to put out there. I mean, that in itself is a huge deal. Anytime you finish a film, it's like, 
honestly a miracle like why how it's a miracle <laughs> so the fact that you you have that you have to think okay how do i capitalize on this so that all of this work that i've put into it um is actually like conducive to something um and for us something that we learned was like having having another project ready to pitch a project that is similar to what you're screening at the time i had written and I, I, I'm, I'm very excited to make this movie one day, but it was one of those like wrong timing type of things where the thing that I was pitching alongside Rosa, which is this like drama that explores class issues, um, was a horror film about a cult. And people just really struggled to be like, okay, so you're showing me this thing that we love that is doing really great in festivals. Mm -hmm. And, and so you're gonna make out of that drama a horror film. But we we don't, you know, you're not appeasing anyone in terms of like your investment is going to be safe because we can tell you can make a good drama, but not a good horror. Mm -hmm. So you have to be or I the thing that I keep going back to now is what is the most strategic thing to have alongside a short? And if you just, you know, if 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 your goal is, you know, the short in and of itself, that's great, too. And maybe you don't have to think about these kinds of things, but. You know, I usually want to expand into something longer. Um, so it's it's sort of thinking about that. Mm -hmm. Anything on your end, Elizabeth? Yeah, I think that that's like definitely a good lesson. Like if you if you have a short that you picture as something longer, like you should be you should have that thing ready as soon as your short goes onto the festival circuit. And there's there's like great examples of that. Like Whiplash started as a short. Um, there's a short uh, that was at South by, I think, one or two years ago. And then the feature just screened there. Um, it's called Shiva Baby. It's like just when you're first starting out in the industry, people um, don't really have any faith in you beyond what they've seen. And there's no reason they should. I mean, like you're very young and everyone has to prove themselves to an extent. So it's it's like nobody's going to be able to imagine that you could kind of inhabit a different genre or like tell a different story they're just like we liked the short we'll take the short longer thank you <laughs> yes. it's it's interesting that because uh, you always hear about industry professionals saying like oh, you get stuck in a box and um mm -hmm. the people want to put you in that box and they want to say oh you're the comedy guy you're the coming of age guy, you're the horror guy, whatever it is, and that's what you're gonna be doing. That's what you're good at. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It's interesting that that's happening from a, f ostensibly a first short, like from that early on, um, people already wanna say, well, how does this translate to horror? Um, so have, mm -hmm. you, have you guys considered, um, like, I guess, m I, the, the films that I've seen of yours are not horror, so, um, have you considered like okay like we want to show that we can do this kind of a thing or we want to show mm -hmm. that we can do uh, a drama versus a horror um how do we approach drama do we have an idea good idea for a horror have you guys had mm -hmm. those conversations i mean i don't know mostly because the timing just happens to match up with like having uh, government that we're both pretty terrified by um, and so it just seems like 
it seems like maybe the type of horror story that I wanted to tell four years ago isn't super relevant right now, and it's not what I'm thinking about right now. What mm. I'm thinking about right now is like undocumented immigrants that are being separated from their kids at the border. Um, so in that sense, just in terms of the timing of what's happening outside us making films, it has happened to align with this idea of like making dramas and socially conscious movies and stuff like that. Um, so that's one reason why like we haven't been super focused on horror lately. Um, but I also think that I think that you can really expand the boundaries uh, of the box, if you will. Like, sure, people will start to to say that maybe we do mostly like um, stuff with like some sort of social impact. And then if we want to make a horror, then you maybe approach it from that perspective, right? Like the I've. I wrote a horror with uh, Ben Sotak, who you had on your podcast. Mm -hmm. um, and it is still like a socially conscious thing. It is still like a political film with, you know, a critique of, in, the, in that case, religion. It's very much about like homosexuality and trying to survive in a, in a society that rejects that. Um, but it's a horror film. So I think there's ways to bridge the quote unquote box that either you put yourself in or others put yourself, uh, put you in uh, with other things that you want to expand into. I don't think that they're necessarily um, mutually exclusive by any means. Mm -hmm. Well, and a lot of people talk about, you know, the only need for genre was it's, it's a construct of like old video stores, you know, like people, they needed a way to categorize movies. Mm -hmm. um, and so they created like, oh, this is horror. This is, you know, but most movies have elements of many different kinds of, of genre. Um, mm -hmm. And I, th I think that's, a, that's interesting that it's just a, it's a mark of the, like how we consume movies rather mm -hmm. than how we make them. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, and also there's something that stuck in my mind that we, we've had a discussion about before, which is um, the film's, nature of being political which is to say like most of my favorite movies i would argue are not necessarily political films I, like when i watch indiana jones i don't necessarily think like you know this is a political statement um mm -hmm. but uh i think the counter argument you had to that ale was every film from the choices you make in casting to who writes it to who directs it Every film is a political film. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. She loves to talk about this. <laughs> no, I, I, I love these conversations. <laughs> well, yeah, it's exactly what you just said. I mean, when you see something as a political, it basically just means that it's upholding the status quo, quite frankly. And, and, and it will seem more apolitical the more aligned you are with that status quo. Um, and... For example, PW and I have been, uh, we're working on this project that we want to do in the form of a Western. And Westerns, for example, are, it's a genre where if you look at it classically, you would say, you know, it's um, good guys and bad guys, right? Like mm -hmm. cops and bandits. And there is like a lot of political messaging underneath that, right? Like law enforcement is fundamentally good. People that live outside the law are fundamentally bad. They're usually like saving, um, some sort of like helpless Mexican community. And it's like, these people can't, they need a white savior. So you see there, there's always some sort of message under a movie because 
the makers are are showing their their worldview, right? And worldviews are political, and and that's not good or bad. It just is. Um, mm -hmm. But I don't know, Elizabeth. What what do you think? Because <laughs> you always laugh when I when I say everything is political. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I definitely agree. Just because, I mean every viewpoint is completely unique to a set of experiences and you can't like filmmaking is just conveying a viewpoint or a collective of viewpoints through like everyone who works on the film so like is is there like a different word we could use besides political is it like um you know is biased the word um i i think that it's like the the point is even if you're watching a movie that like leads with fun, there is a message being conveyed because it's mm -hmm. being told by a really specific viewpoint. Um, and I, I think that like we know that because you can make kind of the same genre of film can be made by a bunch of different people and it can be so drastically different. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that this is like a conversation that's being had now a lot in our industry of like who should be telling whose stories um, because it is inherently political, the choice of who tells a story. Um, and, and that's like an important discussion to be had because um, until very recently, every story, regardless of which community it came from, was told by a white cis man um, and now we, we're in a situation in the industry where people are getting to tell their own stories um, in like small indie ways. But, you know, we, we still haven't seen the, the opposite or like the flip side, which would be actual equality, which is like someone from a community they're not a part of, from a minority community, um, telling a story of cis white people. So like, we 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 think of equality as this thing where it's like everyone telling their own stories but actually what equality is is that anyone can tell any story and we're so not there yet at all mm -hmm. right so. we're not there yet and i think just to add something uh you look at patterns of things so if you if you just like fixate on one individual movie that is um this is just like a very typical example um a movie about lesbians written and directed by a white man okay, the one movie, which can be very good, it can have, you know, maybe that person like did their research, maybe they have personal experience with the queer community, whatever it is. That one movie can maybe hold up and be amazing and still have like a good message. But if you look at the pattern of seeing every like main uh, movie about lesbians is directed by a white man, then you're like, well, hold up. This isn't just a one-time thing. This is like, our whole story has been told to the masses through the eyes of straight men. And what does that do for the way people see lesbians? Interesting. It's a lot to chew on, I think. Um, and I think too, like um, <clears throat> in the spirit of genre and in the spirit of sort of like categorizing films, like you say, PW, hopefully we're getting to a spot where anybody or we will eventually get to a spot where people anybody can tell any story but like you said <laughs> it, we're, not, we're not there yet um what are in your guys perspectives um what are some steps that perhaps you are taking to get there to get to that spot um have, are there any 
ideas that you have had that you said maybe it's not our story to tell oh my god i struggle with that all the time literally every character that i write that isn't a version of me and mm -hmm. i guess they tend to be but you know uh i do think about that a lot um and that's why going back to to this idea of writing what you know because at least you know that that is going to be honest and truthful because it is your truth like no one can say there is no class disparity in colombia because i'll be like no but that was my experience so that's my truth mm -hmm. so then if you start from that and you become sort of very committed to to that like honest exploration of humanity and what it's like to be human then it's a little bit easier to say okay well um what's like the next what's the next thing uh i'm writing or i'm directing people who are playing undocumented immigrants which i'm not but um i do know something about being um in a society that is not entirely accepting i do know something about feeling like you need to watch your back i do know something about um, feeling like I'm rejected by a majority through different ways, through my own experiences. Um, and you start to find those connections via there, but I think it always starts with um, this sort of commitment to taking the characters as seriously as you would take your own life and your own decisions. That's a great answer. Um, and recently I got, um, I think, you both have read my most recent script. But recently this came up because I got some, some feedback from someone who asserted that my film, just because it has one um, lesbian character in it, is an LGBTQ film, which mm -hmm. I would say kind of defeats the purpose of having the character in the film at all. Um, I don't think we can necessarily categorize the whole film that way because that's not, that's not my story to tell, you know what I mean? And, mm -hmm. and hopefully, um, just by nature of having a character, like very, like diverse, various kinds of characters in a story, it doesn't just get put off as, oh, that's, um, that's the Asian movie, that's the black movie, that's the, you know what I mean? And, and mm -hmm. I think that's what we're sort of combating. And, and, and also it's not the world that we all live in. You know, I, I, right. my list of friends is a list of diverse characters. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, you know, hopefully our worldview is, is, is being uh, writ onto our, our films. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway, I, I wanted to unpack that a little bit. I, I'm glad you guys uh, weren't thrown off by me asking. Um, and I know no, we've had not, that discussion. It's, it's, so. it's definitely a good discussion to have. And I think like we've, we've talked about that a lot because um, that's another way and it, not in which people get pigeonholed, but in which films get pigeonholed. Um, and that that in itself is political because it's kind of saying that any experience that isn't cis white male is some sort of like fringe niche experience that, you know, just because your film has an LGBTQ character, it should go to only an LGBTQ film festival or um, because if a film starred a woman, it, it would be pigeonholed into, you know, like women's films are like have been this big discussion and there's been a big industry discussion about how they they don't make money, which, of course, we know is patently false. false. Mm -hmm. um, and they they actually make more money than films starring men. Um, <laughs> so but it's it's this interesting discussion of like pigeonholing a film 
to kind of like marginalize the art itself that mm-hmm. features an already marginalized person. Um, and it's just like, why? <laughs> right. Totally. Um, it, uh, I guess um, shifting gears a little bit into uh, Gets Good Light and how that might be a sadly very relevant film. Um, how did uh, you guys find the project? Um, and then uh, how did it start to take momentum? So Daniel Soleil, the writer of Gets Good Light, reached out to me. We had met previously at a film festival. Um, I was there with, PW and I were there with Rosa. And he had a different film that he'd written in the festival. So we had just like met each other briefly. Um, and then he sent me a script. He was like, are you interested in directing this? I read it. We sort of went back and forth. Um, and then, event- I, you know, after reading it, I was like, well, this is a couple locations, a ton of characters. I'm going to need, like, a hyper-competent producer to make this a reality. So basically, I agreed, like, under the condition that I would have the support I needed, which I knew came in the form of PW. <laughs> um, and so I asked her. Um, and we both just had, like, different projects at the time, um, which is why uh, it wasn't, like, immediately a yes. We were just, like, working on other things. But then it started to become harder and harder to sort of, like, ignore this story when so much was happening. Um And when so much was being said about Latin people, honestly, in the media coming from our politicians and the current administration, it was just super demoralizing um, and like depressing to me. Mm -hmm. So uh, the project sort of became personal um, and that's when it started to gain momentum. Um, And then of course, once PW was like full on said yes, uh, it sort of took off from there. That's great. Um, and uh, did uh, did you find that as you were making it, it sort of was becoming more relevant and more necessary to be made? Yeah, I mean, it did to the point where when we were shooting at the restaurant location uh, that weekend, there had come out like a news some sort of like not a press release but some sort of news piece saying that um ice was going to be holding raids like in the neighborhood that we were going to be shooting on that weekend Mm -hmm. like later that night um so it was it was a situation where the reality of what was happening was like basically on top of the film that we were telling they they became one um so yeah it was it was um it was a, a, a another reason to have a drive to to make the film. Did that change your approach to the minute to minute tasks while making the film? Um, being conscious of that. Um, I don't think so. Uh, I think I think it just made it feel more urgent. But mm-hmm. in terms of the minute to minute tasks, no, I don't think it changed terribly. What were some of the challenges um, faced in pre-production and production? Uh, Schedule, getting crew, whatever it was, um, what were some of the challenges? 
Um, I think the biggest challenge, as frequently is on shorts, is the budget. So we just didn't have a big budget. Um, mm -hmm. And so it was like a lot of creative problem solving, a lot of asking for favors from friends and um, kind of piecing everything together. And, and just as I said before, like being so super, super organized. Um, and I think that like, I mean, for, for me as, on a production side, like this was um, definitely the most challenging short that I've ever produced because it was the first time I was producing without the protect, protection of um, like a legal entity over me. So like when you produce at NYU, you are insured by NYU and you're using their liability. Um, I had worked with a nonprofit. It was the same situation. Um, this was a situation where like I had to open an LLC and like protect myself and like be the legal entity that was protecting everyone. So that was like a new um, production challenge and a new uh, amount of production stress um, that I, I definitely was absorbing. Um, but I, I, yeah, I think the, the biggest challenge was like the budget and it continued to be like through post-production because Ali and I both um, kind of are just like very intense about filmmaking and we're like, no, it needs to be like literally amazing in every aspect. And so the challenge is like, well, how do you do that when you have you never have the right amount of money to make it as amazing as you want. How do you stretch that? Yeah. What, um, right. what sort of things were you having to educate yourself about, um, maybe from a legal standpoint, that you can impart? I think also, I'll let you answer this, Liz, but I think uh, something that compounded all that was uh, having to have a very legitimate... Um, work process because we had um, Kathy and Jessica on <laughs> the project. So I, I, I'm, I'm just bringing it up because I you just you would sa mention SAG, a, a certain caliber of SAG actor. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Which which in and of itself is like a legal challenge. So basically, like, I'll, I guess I'll start there with the legal challenges. But so I've I've been a SAG signatory in the past. Like you can be a student SAG signatory, um, and you know nobody gets paid, and that's kind of how it works. They just basically sign a photo release and go on their merry way. Um, this was a completely different experience. I had to um, do payroll for this production um, because, as Ali said, we had like a very some high caliber TV actresses on set. Um, who you know needed to be paid through loan outs and um, that's that's kind of how it works and I, I I feel like maybe other people feel this way or maybe they don't but I'm just always like is is SAG gonna like blacklist me if I do something <laughs> wrong like there's literally a packet of like a 200 page packet that SAG has you fill out and I'm always like if one line is wrong like I'm never gonna be able to be a SAG signatory again <laughs> Which is probably just like producer anxiety, mm. but um, luckily that didn't happen. Everything was correct. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that that is that is a challenge. Um, I our crew was non-union, um, so I didn't have to deal with uh, any unions from a crew standpoint. But so we didn't we didn't have you know payroll um, for our crew. But 
you know, you do from a legal standpoint, you have to collect um, 1099s from people and make sure that you're following like independent contractor rule. Um, and because we had SAG actors, I, I think we kind of always do this because NYU taught us really well in this way, is that like regardless of whether you're following SAG rules or not, you should kind of just treat your cast and crew with mm -hmm. the SAG guidelines mm -hmm. um, because they, they do a really good job of like making sure everyone has time to eat, mm -hmm. um, making sure you're not, you know, some film sets shoot for like 18 hour days and like mm -hmm. we don't, we don't do that. Um, no, thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and then the other major legal challenge was like opening my own LLC, um, which is just like its own process. And you do have to have a lawyer set it up for you and then um, attach a bank account. And you have to do this weird thing where you like advertise in local publications that you've opened a small business and they have to run for a set amount of weeks or your LLC, when you won't be granted LLC status. So it is kind of like a very antiquated, strange process. Um, and there are people to help you with it, but it was like, oh, this is just like me doing this. Mm -hmm. Great, I hope I do it right. <laughs> and, and when the next one comes around, doing it all over again, I suppose. Right, um, yeah. Sorry, I'm not putting that on your plate right now. You have time, don't worry. <laughs> Um, I, uh, I'm curious, uh, were there any challenges, uh, Ali, were there any challenges or considerations, um, directing something that you hadn't written? Um, I think that the biggest challenge is that when you've written something, there is an, like, there's a natural connection to the material because you wrote it. It came from you, so you know everything. You are the god of this world. You know what the characters think. You know how they feel. You know everything. Mm -hmm. When you're directing something someone else wrote, um, you're interpreting their world. So you're no longer, you're more a translator rather than a creator. Um, so it is different, but I think, um, you find ways to connect to the to the material um and sometimes that involves like doing a little bit of rewriting with the writer of course mm -hmm. um so for example there were like a lot of male characters and there were no women and i was like look you're you're gonna have to put a woman in here because like that's my entry point into this world like mm -hmm. that's that's something that i can connect with easily um, so it's like things like that where you sort of adjust and meet halfway um, or at least at a place where you feel like you have an entry point and then moving on after that uh, it's pretty much the same process of treating each character with the utmost respect mm -hmm. and um, I guess uh, after filming was complete um, were there any uh, challenges in post or uh, stories to tell from the cut coming together um, and then also starting to get into your, your festival run. This is, this was the hardest thing about post. And I would say it's always the hardest thing about either post or finishing any type of, uh, project story, piece of art you're making, um, is believing, uh, believing in it to the end. Um, there gets, mm. 
there gets a point in post where once again everything seems like it's gonna fall apart you convince yourself that this is the worst thing you've ever made actually you don't want to look in the mirror you say this is absolutely <laughs> terrible how could i ever think of making this these are all horrible decisions so you get to that point of like intense melodrama of what have i done um mm -hmm. and i think but you that get to moment, it more than once i'll say <laughs> <laughs> and then you get to it again after you've finished mm -hmm. yes is this good yes. at all is, was you this keep going it? back to it but i think through it before you finish it is very important to either have a support system in collaborators that you trust or just like i don't know go to therapy and have that support system but you need to even at your biggest moments of self-doubt, it's so important to carry on and keep doing it and keep putting one step in front of the other and just finishing the thing, even if you are convinced it is the worst thing that has <laughs> ever been made, because it honestly probably is not. And you will come around to loving it again and falling in love with it and being like, oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> and you're just like always in that spiral of this is terrible, this is great. But when you are in those this is terrible moments, it's important to to have people say, like to have a producer be like, no, keep going, this is working, mm -hmm. don't worry, you're in your head. And then when you have people that detract from that, um, it makes it even that much more difficult. So if some of your collaborators um, are only giving you negative feedback, it can get a little exhausting. You have enough self-doubt um, in your own brain. You don't need it echoed. Um, so I'd say, that's always the hardest part in post, and this was not the exception. It was, you know, the self-doubt and and specifically learning how to communicate with people so that you're still having conversations that are productive, and that's ultimately what we always want to be is productive and um, do things in such a way where ultimately they'll get us to a finished piece and not mm -hmm. you know feel ourselves with fear and self-doubt to the point where we're, we're paralyzed and we have this beautifully shot film uh in a bunch of drives that's not edited mm -hmm. i also i also want to say just like our like ali and my collaboration is like i think because we're also such close friends um is kind of the ideal working relationship like from pre-production through post and especially in post like i i just really believe that um once you get to post there's like not really a hierarchy and it's just like everyone says what they think you don't have to like tiptoe around but you're also not being like a dick obviously um, but if everyone is working in the service of making the film great, you don't really have to worry about what you're saying with people. And I think between me, Ale, and our editor, Carlos, like we have an amazing rapport where, you know, Ale and Carlos could be working together. They can say whatever they need to. If they bring me in to watch, like the three of us can kind of just talk really openly and be like, oh, I don't know about that. And no one's like, how dare you say that? I'm so offended. <laughs> Um, but it's it's like a it's like a collaborative spirit and it's like a trust that you have with like really good working collaborators. And I would say the same goes for like our post sound mixer hunter. Like you know 
if Hunter is telling you a note, like that's a good note. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and he just wants the film to be better. So there, there are definitely people who just want the film to be better. And whenever they say something, you know that's what they mean. Mm-hmm. And then there's people who, you know, have a different vision and may want to throw a wrench in the process. And if you just know those people and you're like, that's not helpful, and you just stick with the positive, positive collaborative people, you'll be you'll be good. Right, or, yeah. or or notes that aren't actionable if you're getting granular about it. Like just like right. this doesn't feel right or like this doesn't like ring like this isn't how this should play like that kind of thing. Where you're just like, well what can we do about that now and like trim three frames here? Yes, actionable. But in like an abstract way, getting notes that you're just like, this doesn't help at all. In fact it just makes me second guess everything. Right. It just makes me spiral. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, also the the way in which someone gives notes is very telling as to um, their level of expertise as filmmakers. Because if, if you're doing things as, such as what you're talking about, Zach, of giving non-actionable notes, well, I mean, that's amateur hour. I'm sorry, but it is. Like, don't... Mm-hmm. If, if you've never been on, on this side of making a film then you won't know that those aren't helpful. But if you've done several films, then just sort of by instinct, you'll know that those notes aren't helpful. So I'd say, you know, learn to sort of get to know people and what they're bringing to the table based on what notes they're getting. And not everything is, you know, sacred uh, and and true and, and exactly what should be. No, some people honestly give better notes than others. Mm-hmm. And... Right. That's very telling about where they are as filmmakers. As, especially in post, because like when you watch an unsound mixed film with temp score, like it is objectively bad. <laughs> so if you have somebody being like, wait, it sounds bad and the music like isn't really right, then you're like, okay, you don't know what I'm asking you to look at even. <laughs> like, right. because the music is temp and the sound is temp. So I'm asking you to talk about story and you're just giving me a sound note. Mm-hmm. So it's like, like that that is really a challenge of post is like who can you who can you even show it to and i think this problem persists because there's like a documentary about the making of frozen 2 on disney (laughs) plus that ali and i obviously loved and they talk about these test screenings they do with audiences and the director is like i wish i could just sit behind people and be like no 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 this part's gonna be great i swear or like (laughs) oh, this part has different, like, the color's different here, but, like, you can't. <laughs> but you can't, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, using that to jump into uh, your collaboration uh, as director-composer, um, what kinds of conversations are you guys having to to start? Are, are you, uh, Ali, are you giving temp score? Or, or Elizabeth, are you giving her temp score? Um, like, how, what's the dynamic like? I'm not a fan of temp score for several reasons. The first one being that if I need to rely on music for the film, t- for the scene to convey its emotionality, then I already didn't do my job as a director. So I need to get the cut as strong and as evocative as possible without even the use of a score. Because then once that is added, that's when it like blows your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not a fan of temp scores, uh, but you know sometimes it's helpful for even the composer or whatever to just know where you're going. But um, we like to start, and, and 
PW is similar, so that's why it's it's easy to have these conversations. But we like to start with uh, where in the story are we and what is our character feeling, um, and just those two things more so than I want this to sound like there will be blood or I want to like mimic this very cool thing that they did with the music in mm -hmm. this film. You get there maybe eventually, but. I really believe that the origin lies with your story and your characters. Yeah. I don't know how you feel, Liz. No, that's definitely the same. Like, I, I always feel like if I'm in a meeting with a director and they're talking to me about, like, music immediately, I'm like, oh, but wait, like, what's your main character's name? Like, I, I always want to start with, like, feelings and emotions and story arcs and character and I think that like our collaboration the the first idea I actually had was um and I texted Ali this I was like I'm gonna put a slidey slidey cello in this <laughs> score and I was like and and this was like a testament to her like trusting me I was like you're not gonna be able to hear it before I record it because there's no like sample that I could play for you mm -hmm. that is gonna mimic this slide um but the idea for that just came from um, Ale's vision of like the the main character Manny kind of feeling like he's in this police state the whole time and just this like heightened anxiety state um, so I was really looking for a sound that could kind of mimic a siren but in a really like beautiful cinematic way because that kind of is the film like embodied it's like the vibe of Gets Good Light is like beautifully cinematic and like scary and gross underneath that. Mm -hmm. So just like talking about that theme gave me a musical idea and then we kind of went from there. Very cool. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a little bit of of, you know, misusing your resources to put it in, in, in those words to have a composer who is just by the fact of being a composer, uh, they're gonna be more musically gifted than the director, unless you know it's it happens to be a musician director. But so like, it, it's just very um, a horrible use of, of that resource for me to come in with music ideas. I come, what I bring to the table is character and story and emotion ideas, and she can figure out how that translates to music. Absolutely. Um, well, and that's what that's the nature of a great collaboration. I think too is just. Um, being able to say, I want to feel like this, or like, this is this character, run with it, you know, like giving that creative expression to another artist and then letting them enhance the work and, you know, having them both come together to create something even better. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So um, I know that uh, we're, we're limited on a little bit of time. So I just want to uh, ask um, as a final thought, um, any final lessons that you learned on Gets Good Light? I know we talked about it. And then also, um, what uh, any advice you guys may have for up-and-coming filmmakers? You want me to start? Either, yeah, either of you. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta think of what to say while you talk. <laughs> um, advice for up-and-coming filmmakers? I'd say... The most important thing, your film is gonna be good if it has two things, two big things, two important things, but it's just two things. Really good crew, so the people that you collaborate with, that also includes your cast, um, but remember, people make movies. It's not cool sound effects, it's people. And then um, a good story. Um, 
if you have those two things, you can create anything, even if, even if you're not an expert musician, even if you're not an expert at like camera and lights, even if you like, you know, learning to rely on the collaborative part of this process is one of the biggest gifts you can give yourself as a filmmaker. And at the end of the day, as a director, all you need to have is like the good judgment to know whom to trust, um, whose vision aligns with yours or challenges it in a way that is beneficial, um, and what is the heart of your story that you're trying to tell. So I'd say those are like the big things for, for me. Hmm. Elizabeth? Um, I feel like my advice uh, I think the biggest piece of advice is just don't quit. Um, I feel like there's, it sounds like, um, you know, that's not a really great piece of advice, but it is because everything gets really hard and it gets hard to, um, keep making stuff. It gets hard to like find money. It gets hard to stay creative. Um, but I like Ali and I talk about this all the time. I think the the biggest difference between people who like make it and don't is just people who didn't give up. Um, mm. And it's it's really it's really easy to kind of just throw in the towel and feel like you're going nowhere and all this stuff. But if you take stock of small improvements you've been making, um, you'll actually see that you are going somewhere. It's just not on the timeline you thought or not in the way that you thought. And if you just persist and try to keep being the best storyteller you can and try and make every project you do a little bit better in that way, then you're going to go somewhere that you're going to be proud of. I love that. Both great pieces of advice. Um, where, uh, where can people go to follow both of you? And where can they go to follow the film? Uh, you can follow us um, at the at Teddy Tracker Instagram account. We post all of our work there. Um, if you want to get personal, you can follow me uh, on at Alejandra Parodipe. Um, I don't post a lot of work stuff there, um, and I, I'm not super active. So that's a great sell for you to follow me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you can. We also have a Teddy Tracker website. It's T E D D Y. T R A C K E R dot com. Um, and then my personal Instagram is at Elizabeth P W music dot com is my website as well. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you guys both for coming on. It was great talking. I think we could talk m much longer if we wanted to, but um, for sure. Yeah. Thanks so much for having us, Zach. And it thank was nice you. to just hang out with you. It's been too long. I know. I hope that we can legit hang out sometime soon. And I don't know high cats or something i don't know <laughs> <laughs> oh my yes we have to oh my god we so much we, we couldn't talk about wow <laughs> yeah we didn't talk about cats <laughs> at all we'll have to have you back for the next film if and even if it's not cats related we'll talk about cats Zach, you should definitely have us back for The Bachelorette coming back on. Oh, boy. It's October 12th, so <laughs> I, I expect to be back on very soon. Here's what I, I think. I think the two of you should just start a Bachelorette podcast, and then I We've can just come on as... We've talked about this so many times. I can, I can come on as the resident don't-know-anything-about-Bachelorette. Uh, explain it to me. And, Sounds um, great. I'll just I ask the right that. questions. 
That's great. That sounds We've great. actually talked about that so many times, but the Bachelor podcast space is far too crowded. <laughs> yes. But it, that's so disappointing. You know what? I think that you could find your your niche. I think that we could find some sort of unique approach to this. Um, maybe. Maybe it's me not knowing anything. Who knows? Maybe. <laughs> explaining, explaining The Bachelor to someone who's never watched it. And like previous seasons of it too, like how it comes into play. If the, I don't know mm. if that's a thing, even if they like reference old seasons, maybe it is. But. I feel like we're on to something. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both again. Appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. Hey guys, just want to remind you that not only can you find the Full Frame Podcast on HMD's website, www.hmdfilms.com, but you can find us on Facebook, and most importantly, you can find us on iTunes, where we would really like if you could leave a review and subscribe. Thanks. Have a great week.